0: Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pairs Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Does anyone else out there love it when a TV or movie character has a very specific drinks order? I'm thinking Andy McDowell in Groundhog Day, going for that sweet vermouth on the rocks with a twist and toasting to world peace. Classic. And I think you know where I'm going with this one, because obviously this is the Vesper episode, and that cocktail is of course notable for appearing in both the Casino Royale movie and book, and also for being the very specific invention of the protagonist, Mr. James Bond. But those are not the only notable aspects of this cocktail, as we'll discover today when we do a deep dive with Patrick Smith, the manager of bar openings for the Union Square Hospitality Group. Because the Vesper also causes us to consider things like international relations, the ingredients used for supposedly neutral base spirits, and what exactly it means to lengthen a cocktail. If I can throw an additional opinion into the mix here, I think the Vespa is also a brilliant drink to highlight someone's progression as a cocktail enthusiast. That progression might go a little something like this. You find out about the Vespa via the big screen or the book, and maybe you order it because it seems cool. Then you start to understand a little bit more about drinks, and you say, wait a minute, this is a martini that contains gin and vodka, and it's shaken? What the hell is he thinking? And then at some point, maybe even during this episode, if we're doing our job right, you might land on the final phase of your journey where you can say, you know what, there's more to the Vesper than meets the eye. And this drink holds up. Congratulations, Mr. Fleming. Promising to leave you neither shaken nor stirred, but hopefully purring like the engine of an Aston Martin. This is the Cocktail College podcast. And today... We're sipping on Vespers. Tube of Pringles, MSG, and a lot of vomit. That's one for a different day. Okay, here we go. I never have more than one drink before dinner, but I do like that one to be large, very strong, very cold, and very well made. Patrick Smith, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Really big drink. (laughs) (laughs) definitely and the drink in question there the quote would be it's the vesper martini
0: of course it is yeah very interested that you say that because my first question for you today of course that is a bond quote there's going to be a lot of bond chat on today's episode it's impossible that there wouldn't be no doubt but first of all i did want to ask you
1: are we classing this as a martini or is the vesper a standalone drink um, I would say, to me, it's a subcategory. I, I think it belongs squarely in the martini universe. It is a really specific martini, for sure, in spe- especially the ingredients that it calls out, um, but also the preparation that it calls for. But to my earlier point, it's also just huge by today's standards, mm-hmm. especially the recipe that that Bond does call out. Mm-hmm. It's so much bigger than almost anything I've ever made in my whole career. So it's in, in a way, it's really badass, but in another way, it's like... I can see why you'd only wanna have one of those. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad that you've clarified that there because
0: that's something I was thinking about and also ties into, I believe, the first interactions that we ever had. I think they were discussing martinis, but then they did eventually sort of lead into the topic of Vespers. So I'm very excited to have you in the studio today chatting about this cocktail. So we've established this is a type, a subcategory of martini. And as we alluded to at the top, this is a Bond drink more than any other, more than the martini, right? So can you give us the reference here? Can, can you tell us what makes this notable and also the, the
1: background there? Right, so uh, it's a really interesting story actually. Um, well, before there were Bond films, there were Bond novels by um, a man named Ian Fleming. And I believe it was his first novel, uh, Casino Royale uh, came out in 1953. And there's a really awesome passage in there, where James Bond um, is at a French casino, and he calls over the what he calls him the barman, and um, orders this dry martini. He says, and then he like grabs the waiter or the, the bartender, and and clarifies further and says his recipe for what would ultimately become the Vesper. And he says, three measures of Gordon, one measure of vodka, and half a measure of Kina Lalay. And he says, um, shaken, I may, may be misquoting slightly, but shaken, uh, very hard and very cold, um, and with a large, thin slice of lemon peel. And that's about as specific as a martini order gets. Um, and actually, at the time, he doesn't name the cocktail Vesper. He actually says something like, I'm going to have to patent this when I do come up with a name for it later on he meets um the heroine of the book Vesper Lind and winds up naming the cocktail after her
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's an incredible like I don't know I'm sure they're out there but I know other references come straight to mind of a book and just this this cocktail being created there and then going on to become a classic going on to become very well known it's worth in it's worth noting too that it's my understanding that this is
1: the only occasion in any of the bond books that he drinks this cocktail. Yeah. And I haven't read too many of these novels myself, but, but I have to say, even when it comes to the movies as well, he, he stops being so specific about the Vesper and starts ordering his famous vodka martini shake and not stirred, mm-hmm. etc. Um, but beyond that from, from a Uh, A cocktail recipe perspective, I think it's really interesting because it's a little bit anachronistic coming from the 1950s. I mean, if you think about what else is happening in the cocktail universe at that time, it's really the the birth of Tiki. And what other stirred cocktails come out of that era? I'm not sure if there really are any because we're not yet to like Godfather or Rusty Nail, like 60s and 70s, like bistro cocktail territory. And we're way past pre-prohibition, and th- and this cocktail sounds a little bit more like a pre-prohibition cocktail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting to to note the time period there that this is happening,
0: um, and also just as we mentioned, like that the, the fact that this is an author
1: <laughs> essentially, right? It's, it's yeah, a he's kind an bartender. Yeah, <laughs> that I'm. I, he's never worked behind a bar that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he was in the, the British military in World War II, um, and perhaps he learned how to make drinks uh, while stationed. Mm-hmm. Abroad, But um, whatever the case, um, he came up with a with a recipe that has stood the test of time. And it's interesting, too, because then it goes through this whole probably
0: re- period of rediscovery outside of maybe like nerdy bar, fo- you know, circles when the movie comes out. I will be honest, I know passages from Casino Royale, the book, I have not read the book myself, but I don't believe the same thing happens like happens in the movie, where suddenly everyone around the table is going like, oh, I'll have one of those too. I'll have one too, hold the fruit. And it's like yeah, bond it's influencing. Yeah, it's such a funny scene. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but they do, I actually just watched the clip um, today uh, and he does pretty much say exactly the recipe as it's called in the book, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And I think we could have
0: saved this for later, but I'm going to throw it in there now because you've mentioned it. The shaken, not stirred. Mm -hmm. Of course, that has become slightly controversial over the years. But I was just happened to be reading through the Savoy cocktail book last night, which was published, what, 1930s? the martini recipe in there is shaken, not stirred. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know. Th- I, I, yeah, I literally came across that last night and I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, people look back and be like, well, yeah, Ian Fleming got this wrong cause he's not a
1: bartender, but maybe actually that was historically accurate at the time, right? We're talking 1950s. Well, it's, I certainly could have been, and you also got to remember at this point in time, um, certainly in like the thirties, but maybe not so much in the fifties, but, uh, Ice was probably of quite a different quality at that time, not to mention the spirits themselves. I mean, I know not only have these recipes changed, but I'm sure the quality has gone up over the years of the spirits, but also of the ice To the even to the extent that maybe today what it means to shake or stir a cocktail using really nice ice that's designed specifically for cocktails and is super cold and not melting yet, perhaps it was a little bit harder to come by that quality of ice at the time. So maybe your technique's, Like I know, um, this might be getting a little bit nerdy, but, uh, I will always adjust the way I make drinks to the quality of the ice that I have around me. Sure, If I have beautiful, perfect cold draft cubes, which is a specific, uh, like cocktail bar centric variety of ice cube, I'll shake or stir in a certain way. But if I have like home ice or what we call hotel ice, which is like really slippery, wet, um, like crappy ice, um, yeah. Then I'll stir or shake quite differently because the the point isn't the ice; it's the cocktail that results from the ice, and you gotta you gotta tailor it that way. Mm-hmm. So perhaps in in the 30s, and I'm just riffing here, it, it's possible that um, the quality of the ice necessitated different methods of preparing these things. Yeah,
0: and of course, so we're looking at this now as a drink, and yeah, maybe we'll take a couple steps back from Bond for a second, and I'm sure we will return to him, but. What else makes this a notable cocktail? Are there any other facets of it that really stand out to you as a yeah, as a bartender?
1: Yeah, definitely. From a pure recipe standpoint, it's really interesting that it is a split-based uh, cocktail coming from this era, um, but specifically that it is um, a split of gin and vodka. I'm not sure that there is another classic cocktail that calls for a split of gin and vodka. No. And it's really strange. Um, and, and I think you got to kind of come at it from a couple different angles as to why it even makes sense. Cause I think you can actually say this just doesn't make sense. I think that's a mm-hmm. fair point. Um, but if you want to make it make sense, there are a couple ways to do it. In my opinion, one is, and from a bartender perspective, you'll hear things like, well, the vodka kind of lengthens the gin and kind of, um, makes it a little bit less dense on the palate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it
0: dilutes the flavor without diluting the ABV.
1: Yeah. And, and it, and it, it's, it's almost as if you were to say, I want to have a gin martini, but I don't want to get smacked in the face with all that gin flavor, but I still want that, that alcohol ratio to still be there. And so it's a way to, it's almost like filler on the palate. Um, And so that's maybe a bartender centric way to put it. But, um, and I'm still, I'm not sure that I buy that personally, but nonetheless, from a bond perspective too, it's really interesting um, because I had always heard that the inspiration as to why you would mix gin and vodka in this cocktail actually pertained to like the geopolitics of what Bond was dealing with at that time. Interesting. In that you would use British gin and like Soviet vodka. And it was kind of like a handshake of like, we're going to have like nice relations between these two countries in a Mm -hmm. time of of war. Mm -hmm. Um, And um Again, I actually am, I'm not sure of where I've heard that. It's possible that I made it up. <laughs> but, um, but the other one is that um, the, the character Vesper Lind, um, spoiler, is uh, turns out to be a double agent um, and works for the Russians as a, as a spy. And so we have um, a double agent cocktail with British gin and, and Russian or Soviet vodka. Mm-hmm.
0: And it definitely makes more sense that Fleming a person who's writing the first of a series of spy novels might want to take this editorial approach more than, say, a bartender would at the time? Um, And is it even possible, again, we're just throwing things out here now, is it even possible that he came up with the quote that I said at the start of the episode, you know, wants the drink to be large, very strong, very cold, and very well made? Did he come up with a quote first and be like, okay, how can I make a martini more
1: stronger do you know what i mean like hammer <laughs> home that point by adding the vodka yeah maybe i mean like i said earlier it's just it's just a huge cocktail it's uh, i think four and a half ounces all told when it comes out and and most martinis these days i mean you'll see in new york um like uh, specs or recipes that range anywhere from between like two and a half to three and a half ounces four is really really big so four and a half is like extra <laughs> it's it's almost so large that it I am trouble having I'm tru- having trouble imagining it fitting into a cocktail glass like a contemporary cocktail glass for this very reason I have six ounce cocktail glasses at home there you go
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, you spoke about the modern day there you spoke about the modern landscape here in New York and across the country. I wonder what do you feel the sentiment is towards this drink?
1: both from the bartending community and from guests. So I do think it's gotten into popular culture a little bit. And I I think that is probably largely due to the movie edition of Casino Royale, but consumers and bar guests, um, do order this classic cocktail in New York's cocktail bars. And they, they what we say cold call it. So they'll, they'll just be at the bar or with their server and say, um, I'll have a Vesper and, um, I was actually looking at uh, one of the um, bar programs for a bar that we just opened in my in my restaurant group called Manhattan, which is down in the financial district. And when we looked at the spread of what cocktails had been ordered, um, Vesper wasn't at the top of the list by any means, but we had sold like a dozen Vespers and we've been open for only three weeks or so. Wow. So and that's not on the menu. No, it's not on the menu. And so that's that's a dozen people um, who wanted a Vesper and, and probably none of them were bartenders. Mm -hmm. So that's just in the community. Um, from a bartender perspective, I will say as, as a career bartender, when I get an order for a Vesper, I, I kind of think two things to myself. I think like, Oh, here's, um, someone who wants to elevate their experience a little bit and have something that's a little bit more, it's a martini, but, but with a twist, not to be, not to make a pun, but Mm -hmm. a little bit, um, (laughs) yeah. Right. Uh, with just a little bit more flair or a little bit more touch to it. Um, and so here's somebody who, who styles themselves as an an educated drinker and wants to have a nice experience. And so that's really cool. And on the other hand, I'm thinking to myself, I got to go hunt down a bottle of gin and a bottle of vodka and a bottle of amortized wine. And that's going (laughs) to, that's going to tie me up at service bar for a little bit. And it's totally worth it. Mm -hmm. Um, you should order Vespers if you, if you would like to, um, it's just as a service bartender like sometimes uh it's funny to to go to go on a hunt for these bottles
0: have you ever had this this cocktail on any of your menus as a permanent fixture just just thinking myself here about you know that the bartending community's um feelings towards this drink i don't see vespers that often on menus
1: yeah um i think you're you're right and i haven't seen them too much either i've never put one on a menu myself i do think there's room for it after having done a little bit of research on this cocktail um It's cool. It's, there's a lot happening there and there's a lot happening from a flavor perspective. And there's a a lot of ways that you can make it very crafty and very intentional, um, where I think it could deserve a place on, on a cocktail menu. Um, because really when you think about, um, classic cocktails that wind up on somebody's cocktail menu, it's, I've taken this recipe and I've really dissected it and I've really, got to the molten core of it and I really want to make it perfect um, either by like honoring the recipe so totally that it's the the perfect like platonic form of this cocktail or I can update it and make it contemporary and give it new life. And I really want you to experience it. So those are both really great reasons to put a classic cocktail on your menu. If you're a bartender and um the Vesper falls into one or both of those mm-hmm. categories, I would say. And speaking from personal amateur experience here, I am not
0: a professional. I know that's hard for you to believe. No, <laughs> I, the, the, quoting the office there, I am not a professional. <laughs> However, at home, um, I, I ended up making some Vespers with, I got some high quality flavored vodkas. Actually, you know, vodkas infused with real fruit from the Pacific Northwest. And I was like, that could be an interesting use for this because... Um, the vodka has a reason to be there beyond just booze. And I know we're getting ahead of ourselves in terms of the show and stuff, but that's something I've enjoyed doing at home.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, what you say there kind of reminds me of something that you'll hear a lot in like the bourbon community or the the very fancy whiskey community, which is I've got this really fancy bottle. Um, should I only drink it neat or should I put it on a cube or would it be sacrilege to put it in an old fashioned (laughs) or something? And to their credit, that community their, their opinion is nine times out of 10, you should do whatever you want with it. It's yeah. your bourbon, it's your scotch. Mm-hmm. And so it's your flavored vodka and it's your cocktail. And so, uh, you know, what is the point of all of this anyway? We're making cocktails Yeah, like it's supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be creative and you're Absolutely. supposed to enjoy what you're drinking. And so there's no reason to, to adhere so closely to a pre-established recipe just for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. And I like
0: that you mentioned before there where if you are making this cocktail and you're not going for a kind of modern version, you're going for the classic and you really want to dial into like making that as good as possible. Before we go into how you do that, if someone's making it for you, what are you expecting from this drink? What, what, what's the profile? What are you looking for?
1: Yeah. If I'll, if I'll order a Vesper at a, at a bar, I'm really looking for some fine details. Um, First of all, I suppose I'm looking for a a bartender who doesn't look at me like I have six eyes when I order it. Like they know what it is. (laughs) Like that's a good starting point. Um, Like you know, it's bad when the when the bartender has to kind of duck down and look on their phone for a recipe, which which happens not infrequently. With can I stop you for a second there? Sorry to interrupt, but that has happened to me a few times. What's the best practice there? Do I just
0: say, you know what? forget about it, like no insult whatsoever. But like, give me something that you know and that you enjoy making. Or do I be like, you know what? The standard these days is so good that
1: I trust that they can look at the specs and they can execute. Yeah, I mean, most, if you're a bartender, who, let's say you don't know the recipe for a Vesper and someone orders it. If you're a bartender who has decent technique and has the ingredients around you, you can look at the recipe and make a good Vesper because all it is is adding things to um, your tin or your glass, and and executing your good technique on it. And so, even if you've only seen that recipe for the first time, there's no reason why you can't make it good. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, like if you notice that your bartender seems to not know what's going on, it's not a. It's not really necessarily their fault because they may be very new to the industry, and we all started somewhere. Yeah, um, but. I would try to gauge the situation and say, is this someone who has the time to really go through this process with me? Like, do they have five minutes to spare and we can really talk about it? Mm -hmm. Um, Not that I would like coach them through it, but do they have the time to like go (laughs) on their phone and figure it out? Yeah. Or are they super busy? And is it time to pivot to something a little bit more um, simple or classic Mm -hmm. or or even just like a beer? Yeah. So just read the room. Yeah. Basically read the room. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah so sorry for that interruption no not at all moving on from there so first the the bartender then what else right yeah so I would say um, glassware is going to be important here Uh, I really am going to want to to Bond's point I'm going to want this thing to be cold and that starts with a really cold glass so ideally um, you've got a glass in a freezer but not all bars have freezers so a a fridge will do Um, but I or if you don't even have enough space behind your bar to refrigerate glassware, like you don't have enough fridge space, um, put a couple cubes in it and and fill it with water to kind of uh, get that glass cold. Um, you start with a cold glass, the temperature differential between the glass and the cocktail when it's finished um, won't bring the temperature of the cocktail up right away, even before I drink it. So if you start with a cold glass, you're already giving yourself an advantage. Um, and then uh, I'm going to look for Decent quality gin, decent quality vodka. There's a lot of different avenues you can take to this, and we'll talk about that later. But um, you know, I don't need to. I don't need you to be picking up something out of like a plastic handle, Georgie. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: Um, you could do the Georgie double for this yeah. cocktail, by the way, but it probably
1: wouldn't be very good. <laughs> um, and then the um, amortized wine, which I assume we'll also be getting into um, later. But whatever you select. Um, ideally it's pretty fresh. It hasn't been sitting it. it, First of all, it's been refrigerated if it's opened. Um, ideally, I mean, in a perfect world, it is an unopened bottle, but that's only going to happen once out of every like 50 times. Um, but ideally it hasn't been open for too long and it's been refrigerated. Mm -hmm. Um, and then for me, the shaken versus stirred thing, I don't really have too much of an opinion personally on it I suppose I do think you should drink the cocktail that you want to drink if I were making one I'd probably stir it by default because mm-hmm. I really like the texture of a stirred martini it's very velvety and delicious in that way um but I know people really love the idea of shaken not stirred and they love feeling like James Bond and after all that's part of the point mm-hmm. um and I don't want to uh, like look my nose down at people who want to feel like James Bond yeah. right but um So I would stir it and then I would, I would look for a beautiful lemon twist. Um, but as I said, it's basically all about the little tiny details with this Mm -hmm. one, because there's no big, bold syrup or mezcal or like smoke finish or fire or, or anything like that. There's nothing spicy. It's, it's a bunch of really simple, clean, austere ingredients that need to be mixed just so, and then it's really delicious. It certainly can be a delicious cocktail. Um, let's dial into the ingredients for
0: that now. Um, because like you said, this is, it's, it's simple, it's clean, they come together so well. And usually when we're talking about drinks like that, the ingredients take on heightened importance. So let's start with gin first. What's your approach here? You mentioned, of course, Gordon's
1: in Bond's recipe, but mm-hmm. what's your modern day approach to this? Well, first it's worth mentioning that Gordon's does still exist. Um, the recipes changed since the 50s. And so you 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 could very well make a, a good Vesper with Gordon's, but you might expand your horizons out a little bit and try um, something else in the London Dry category as well. And I would, I would stick to London Dry at least the first time you make a Vesper, um, which is this uh, very old school category of gin that generally does come from the UK, um, and is pretty forward on the juniper, um, and not too complicated with the other botanicals. Um, but I would say a Tanqueray, a Beefeater, uh, like a Heyman's London dry, um, one of these really old school, um, um, labels that's been around for a long time. Um, I would, I would start there. Mm-hmm. the classics. Yeah, definitely. Keep it classic for this yep. one.
0: And then what about vodka? Cause I think this does bring us back to that passage again. I think mm-hmm. even though people might think like, what's it doing there? I think as a discussion, vodka is one of the most interesting things to talk about here. So, um, let's talk about the, the book first and, and, and where we're directed in that scenario.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting what happens in the book because, um, Overall, the the bartender does a really good job with putting together this very specific recipe that Bond asks for. Um, yeah, off the cuff. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a specific order. It's really strange, <laughs> but um, the to the bartender's credit, he he comes up with something. Um, that Bond enjoys. And he does offer one piece of feedback about it, which I just thought was so funny. Um, He says something to the effect of, oh, it seems you used a a potato-based vodka here. I'd recommend using something grain-based in the future. It would make it it even better. And I'm like, wow, like Bond like really is a, cocktail artist here <laughs> is he or is he just being a bit of an arsehole here We're, in the yeah, room yeah. like what you know like well yeah so he he's definitely that but um i he th- let me rephrase that he hmm. thinks of himself as, yes. as a cocktail artist here mm-hmm. um or he's 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 playing one on tv or something right yeah um but that being said uh you know to go from a, a potato based vodka to a grain based vodka. If you're, if you're using potato vodka, it's probably Polish. Like most of these come from Poland, Chopin or, um, like vodka. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, to go to grain based, I think it would make sense from a flavor perspective because the, the gin's going to be grain based as well. Mm-hmm. Most London dries are also grain based, but, um, for me, I'm going to try from a bond perspective and also from a flavor perspective to keep it European. Mm-hmm. Um and it's really interesting because there are some vodka brands out there that you would look at the label and you think it's European but it it is or you'd think it comes from a certain country and it doesn't. Let's yeah. just make it even more broad. Mm-hmm. Like you look at a bottle of Stoli. Yeah. That's not coming from Russia. No. Um it's coming from Latvia. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, Smirnoff is, I believe, made in the United States. It is. Yeah. Um, and so I'm looking for something that is Eastern European um, and beyond the political reasons, maybe not to use a Russian vodka at this sure. time, um, you actually are going to have a tough time finding it anyway in the United States. And so I'm going to search for a different European, Eastern European vodka. I'm probably going to go to like Belvedere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's oh, Polish. Incredible. It's Polish and it's it's uh, rye-based, which mm-hmm. is grain. And so uh, we've got a rye-grain-based vodka from Eastern Europe. In fact, Poland, I believe, was part of the Soviet Union. And so it is a Soviet... I mean, yeah. they probably wouldn't like be yeah, referred they're... to as a Soviet vodka. But mm-hmm. in the 50s, if Belvedere was made in the same place, it was made in the Soviet Union. Sure, yeah. Accurate for that. Right. So we've got ourselves a grain-based vodka um, from Europe. Um, and so I'd I'd probably go to Belvedere. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And just another kind of example
0: highlighting here of of Bond's kind of flexing in that scenario. I believe there's a quote where he says um, "menon coulon par les which my French is terrible, but apparently is a very than mine. <laughs> <laughs> apparently it's a very vulgar French expression of saying "let's not split hairs." So. Bond's flexing his French is also his his knowledge. (laughs) And I do believe later in the novel too, I think it's in this one, that he explains to Vesper that um, he, I think they're drinking vodka and having caviar. And he explained that it's something that he came across first spending time in Russia. So again, that would make sense here, like why he is going for the grain. Um, but I do completely agree with you. I think Belvedere, incredible, uh, some incredible expressions they offer, especially these, these terroir series that they're doing now.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Like mm-hmm. if you want to do a really luxurious one, they've got these, I'm forgetting the name of them right now, but these marks mm-hmm. that are in these like frosted, yep. almost like black looking bottles that are named for all these um, I think specific, one's a forest and yeah, one's a lake. Yeah, there's a forest and a lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, uh, They um, are these terroir-driven vodkas that are really delicious. And so you could imagine a world where if you really want to style yourself out, you pick up a really, really nice bottle of terroir-driven Belvedere. You pick up a really, really nice bottle of like a Tankeray 10 or like a super premium London Dry. And um, you have a fresh bottle of your amortized wine, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. Um, And you get the perfect glass. And as a home bartender, you're now making like that platonic form of the Vesper. Mm-hmm. Like this is about as good as a Vesper can get.
0: As good as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. So let's dive into that third ingredient now because this is the one too that does really beg the argument of we don't really know now what Fleming's drink would have tasted like because ingredients change. Um, what was historically or correctly this third part of the cocktail?
1: Right. So he calls for something called quina Laleh Um, and you may be familiar with something, um, that sounds a little similar called Lelay Blanc. Um, and it is, uh, essentially the same, the same producer, you might say like a grandchild of, of Kina Lelay, but, um, this Kina category of amortized wine, um, contains quinine and it contains quinine for, um, the anti-malaria reasons, um, and, and at the time, uh, a lot of French people, and Quina Lele is a French product, a lot of uh, French people were, were, were doing um, some pretty, frankly, deplorable colonialist activities in like North Africa and other areas where malaria was an issue. And so the French government actually put out a, a competition um, to say, what's, what's a way that we can make quinine palatable? Um, and the winner of this competition was, was Lalay. And so they made Kina Lelay um, as a way for these French uh, soldiers to um, avoid malaria or treat malaria while still enjoying something that that was palatable to mm-hmm. them. So anyway, um, all that t- is to say Kina Laleigh is no longer in production. Um, Lelay Blanc uh, essentially either completely di- or negates or really ratchets back. The quinine mm-hmm. um and so it's far less bitter than uh kina Lele would have been um but that said there are a couple of alternatives out there that are probably closer to the flavor profile um one is um tempest fugit which is a american liqueur um company you might call it like a modifier company yeah. um and they make they make a kina um I don't have it in front of me. The Kina Laor. Laerodor, Yeah, Lerador. Um, And it is billed as a replacement for Kina Laoray specifically. Um, so that's going to be a really good choice. Nice. Um, there's also Coki Americano, um, which is an Italian amortized wine that also does have quinine in it. Um, I like to try to keep with things that came from the same country, if possible, with things like this. And I, and and uh, the Tempest Fugit does come the, from the United States, but at least it is explicitly an attempt to recreate Kina Lalei, whereas Coki Americano was a contemporary of of Kina Lalei. And so it was different at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I'd have to imagine it's different now as well. And And, um, and, and can we assume, or maybe
0: not assume, but perhaps hazard a guess that where did they come up with this product for the vodka specifically, or are there any other kind of classics that call for Kina Lile that are not coming to the top of my mind?
1: Um, I think it's called for in like a 20th century cocktail. Yep. Uh, okay. with, with cacao and lemon, mm-hmm. um, which is such a funky cocktail. It's not neither here nor there, but <laughs> I, I do think that calls for Kina lalay. Um, but um, nonetheless, there's one other product that I that I think is kind of cool here, which is uh, actually local to New York City. Um, it's from from a producer called Saint Agrestis in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, and they just released a uh, Paradiso Aperitivo. Um, and it's a quinine um, infused amortized wine. Um, and the reason why I thought of it is because I was at manhattan this bar that we just opened in my restaurant group and um was watching service bar and someone had ordered one of these dozen or so vespers right and um the service bartender who was our our head bartender that night his name's cameron Winkleman. um he picked up the bottle of San Agrestis um paradiso aperitivo and he kind of gave me this like wild eyed look and was like, I'm going to put this in this Vesper. <laughs> I thought it was really funny. Um, but I, then I thought about it and I was like, that's a pretty good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, there's a good shot that it tastes less like Kina Lale than mm-hmm. the Tempest Fugit or maybe even the Cokie Americano does. But I thought it was a really cool, like out of left field suggestion. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And yeah. so
0: just, just to wrap this one section up briefly, this up uh, beyond the, the the inclusion of quinine um what are the arguments against or what are we looking for that's more than a vermouth or mm-hmm. taking us away from the profile of of modern
1: day lay like why why do those not quite work uh maybe yeah. historically yeah so um you'd be tempted to say why why wouldn't you use just like a dry vermouth yeah right um and I think there's two reasons. One is um, the sugar content of a of a was probably a little more elevated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was, in other words, it was sweeter than uh, like a traditional dry vermouth. Um, but then there's also that bitterness element that comes from the quinine. Mm-hmm. That I think if you were next to Bond at that at that. Uh, day, that fictional day in the French casino, and you had also enjoyed what would become the Vesper, you'd probably notice that it was a little bitter or a little, yeah, like a little yeah. more bitter than you would have thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a pretty important part of the flavor. And so I would hate to lose it. Mm-hmm. Um, and quinine is kind of a different, a difficult flavor to, uh, put into a cocktail simply because it's a, it's a little bit difficult to infuse. Like I wouldn't recommend infusing quinine at home. It can actually get dangerous. Yeah. Um, but other than that, easily accessible ingredients that contain quinine would be like tonic water. Yeah. And at the point where you're putting a carbonated ingredient into your Vesper, you've, you've done something completely different. (laughs) Um, so, um, yeah, that's, those are, those are the, the main reasons. reasons why I'd say you'd want to actually, it's worth your time, let's say, to find something that goes beyond a traditional or contemporary vermouth for the sake of this cocktail. And Lillet that- Blanc is a fine substitute, but it's going to lack that bitterness. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah.
0: Now, what about your preparation specifically? So, imagine we're here, or imagine I'm, imagine I'm Bond, and I've just ordered this from you. Right. Can you take me through your the specs that you would use? You got the today? accent for it. I gotta yeah. say, <laughs> I'd like to think, uh, although my name is Tim, I'd like to think I'm more of the Sean Connery Sean. You know, <laughs> <But> anyway. <laughs> very nice, very money penny. <laughs> Excellent. We'll cut that. Uh, so, I've ordered a Vesper. Um How would you make it today?
1: You know, we're at Manhattan. Sure. Um, So Bond calls for three parts, one part, one half part. In other words, that's going to come out to three ounces, one ounce and half an ounce. Like I said, I think that's too big, Um, mostly for glassware's sake, but also for for people's palates, I, I don't want to over somebody. And so I'd be pretty cautious about yeah. making somebody a four and a half ounce cocktail. Um, so I, I'm just going to doctor it by bringing the gin down by one ounce. And so I'm going to go two ounces, one ounce and half an ounce of gin, vodka and our amortized wine respectively. And with the gin, um, I'm probably going to go with beef eater. Mm-hmm. Um, it is about as classic as it gets. um, And vodka, I will pick up my bottle of Belvedere if I've got it handy. Um, And then I will probably pick up the um, Tempest Fugit Kina. um, Although I'll be tempted to pick up the St. Agrestis Paradiso. Uh, Maybe I'll feel you out as a guest a little bit and see whether you're into something a little bit uh, out of of the left Mm -hmm. field. Um, But if we're going traditional, I'm going to go with the Tempest Fugit for sure. Um, And then... I will probably shake this cocktail for you if it's a cold order. Um, I think from a flavor profile perspective, I would prefer it to be stirred. Um, But you, in all likelihood, ordered this cocktail because you want to feel like James Bond. And James Bond wanted this cocktail shaken, and he was very vocal about it, obviously. Um, And so I'm going to try to be a good host over being a quote-unquote good drinks maker mm-hmm. specifically. Yeah. Uh, cause I think that's actually more important. And so mm. I will shake this cocktail for you. Um, and then I'm going to, um, cut you fresh, a long, thin lemon peel as, um, bond specifically called for. Um, and I will, um, do something called manicuring it where I'll cut the edges off with a paring knife and make it look very pretty. Um, cause this is all about elegance, right? Uh, and I'll express it and, um, That is to say, squeeze it over the surface of the cocktail to get those lemon oils onto the surface of the drink. And then I'll flip it upside down and drop it into the into the glass and push it towards you. Very nice. Uh, And glassware there, coupe. Yes, I'm going to use a coupe. It's funny because um, so Bond calls for a champagne goblet. specifically, that's the glass that he says. And it's it's funny to think about what that means. Um, I think it probably means a coupe. Mm-hmm. or something that looks most closely to a coupe. Um, right, the, that that kind of the, the, the Marie Antoinette-inspired exactly. yeah. champagne. Um, yeah. And it's not a V-shaped martini glass. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually had trouble finding images of V-shaped martini glasses from the 50s. Um, I think at that time, it was still these rounded-edged coupe glasses. And so it's funny because you see... Bond drinking out of V-shaped martini glasses all throughout the 60s Mm -hmm. up through today. Um, But I think in Casino Royale, Ian Fleming is imagining Bond receiving this cocktail in a coupe. Mm -hmm. Which, again, does cast
0: some doubt on, on the original version of the drink because surely those coupes wouldn't have been big enough.
1: Yeah, it's true. Maybe and they're so, doing a little sidecar situation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would be very <laughs> advanced for the fifties, but, um, but, but maybe. And maybe there were really big um, mm-hmm. goblets. That being said, if you want to get super nerdy, um, he does say parts. He doesn't say ounces. Ah, uh, okay, right. Okay, yeah. So maybe, maybe we're we're scaling it back a little bit. And and you got to also remember we're in France, so we're not measuring measuring in ounces. We're probably measuring in milliliters. Very true. Um. So. It, by proportion, you could still have it fit in the glass if you were using um, a unit of measurement that wasn't ounces. This is good. We, we're just picking away every single
0: aspect of yeah. it, and <laughs> you know what? I think we're, we're, we've come to the end with this final drink in front of me, and we're saying, actually, you know what? It holds up in every respect.
1: Yeah, and and I think, look, if you if you receive in a well prepared. Vesper to all the, the intricate details that we talked about, I don't think there's any way that you're going to watch this cocktail being lovingly prepared and expertly, um, finished in front of you. And then you sip it and you, and you taste it and you're like, this sucks. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because that's- the, the ingredients have integrity all of their own, and you can, I think, make the flavor argument that they work well together If you, if you buy the idea of the vodka lengthening the gin, uh, whatever that means, I mean, at the end of the day, like I said, it's just a cocktail. You're Mm -hmm. meant to enjoy it and nothing more. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm going to start adopting that as just my new thing. When I'm making drinks at
0: home, I'm going to start lengthening stuff.
1: Yeah, it's a good idea. Just a Negroni. <laughs> Just adding an extra answer
0: On top of my equal yeah, parts. Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
1: Vodka and my eggs. I'm lengthening the eggs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Oh, this coffee. Yeah, you know exactly. what it needs? <laughs> Any final thoughts today on the Vesper? I think it is a cool cocktail and it belongs in the conversation um, of contem- in the contemporary canon of classic cocktails. Um, I, th- I like, I like it when guests order it. I like the fact that they want to elevate their experience. Um, it, it shows that they care about what they're drinking, which I think is cool. Um, and from a recipe perspective, it calls for a really unique ingredient in this quinole, which presents a unique challenge to a bartender who's trying to make this for you. And the split base of gin and vodka is nothing if not super unique. And so I do think it has a place and I think it's kind of cool and you should order one if you want to have it at a bar. And I think you'll like it if the bartender knows what they're doing.
0: And if that bar (laughs) happens to be Manhattan as well, I can't think of a better view in the city right now to enjoy such an incredible cocktail. Yeah, well, it's
1: a cloudy day today, so I imagine yep. you'd be looking at a white wall of cloud. <laughs> it is pissing but. it down here. <laughs> but um yeah, I, I I think you're right. Yeah. Maybe put
0: on a tux. <laughs>
1: there you go. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, thank you very much for that, Patrick. We're gonna transition now into the five final questions of the show where we get to know our guests a little bit more. Cool. Let's kick this off. Question number one, what style
1: or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? So my back bar um, is littered with scotch and with rum. Uh, I love both of these categories of spirit. I think they're both, well, for one, they're just really delicious to me. I love drinking them. And, um, I guess that's what matters the most, huh? Yeah. But um <laughs> there they're also really diverse categories from a flavor perspective. I mean, with Scotch, you've got everything from your very, very light blends or your lowlands all the way to your really, really smoky powerhouses and yeah. your sherry finishes and and everything in between. Um, and rum is I would say probably the most complex category of spirit that exists. Um, and there's so much to to dive into and it's so fun to mm-hmm. to drink it. And if someone were saying you're
0: only allowed one right there, um, if you pick one of those, you, yeah, yeah, you're doing, it, you're doing a pretty good job because your options are seemingly limitless.
1: Yeah, it's a cheat code, right? Because <laughs> they don't all taste the same. Yeah. <laughs> so you can have all these different like flavor experiences within the same category. That's awesome. Question number two, which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? So I have an ingredient and a tool. Um, for ingredient, um, speaking of French amortized uh, or or fortifieds, um, I really like one called Solaire's Aperitif. It's spelled S-A-L-E-R-S, um, and it's a little bit lower ABV, um, but it, it blends super well into cocktails. Um, I love it with agave. Um, I love dropping a little bit into a stirred cocktail, but it also loves citrus. Um, it loves grapefruit. Uh, It loves herbs. Um, And in terms of what it tastes like, it's very earthy. Um, And I've always said it tastes like dirt in a good way. (laughs) Um, So Solaire's is a fantastic item for your your home bar or if you're a bartender for your back bar, in my opinion. Um, And as far as tools go, and I guess this is more geared towards a home bartender, um, I've found myself when making cocktails at home turning to chopsticks to stir cocktails, um, they work super well. And I don't always have a bar spoon handy if I am trying to make myself a simple Negroni or old fashioned or even martini at home or something like that. Whereas my chopsticks are are like in my silverware drawer. And so they're they're right at hand. And so I'll just grab one. Oh, crap. I forgot my bar spoon. <laughs> Here's a chopstick. It's just as good. <laughs> so I love a chopstick at home for for stirring cocktails. But it's also pretty nice for grabbing mm-hmm. cherries or olives or something like that. Um, so the humble chopstick uh, belongs nice. in a home bartender's arsenal. Putting it on the Pantheon here today. Question number three, what's the most
0: important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry?
1: Um, so I had a couple different thoughts about this, um, but I'll just say the most simple one, which is to listen more than you talk. Um, I think everybody has something to teach you in um, the moment where you think you've you've learned it all and now your job is to spout all this knowledge, um, said the podcast guest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the idea that that's what you're now put on this earth to do is so um, self-defeating and it's pretty conceited. And so I always like to, to try very, very hard to just shut up and be a fly on the wall in front of really smart people um and that will ideally always be true fantastic wonderful advice right
0: there penultimate question for you patrick if you could only visit one last bar in your life
1: what would it be so this will probably come out of left field because we've been very fancy thus far today, um, <laughs> but I'm I'm from Wisconsin and I I met my wife in Madison, Wisconsin, and we met at this really fantastic dive bar called called the Plaza. Um, it's been standing for for many many decades, um, and you know pool tables, murals of of loons and and North lakes and and like cheap Miller Light and and things like that. So I'm definitely going to the Plaza Tavern and having a Plaza burger. <laughs> I lo- I mean, that sounds
0: wonderful. I love those experiences. I also just love the idea of a dive bar
1: called the Plaza. Like, it, what it was, <laughs> like, it was it was next door to the Savoy? N- there's nothing <laughs> remotely Plaza-like about it. <laughs> um, and yet no one ever questions the name. It's just the Plaza. I, I, I need to get myself up there. Please do.
0: Final question for you today: If you knew that the next cocktail
1: you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Um, so, I will probably have a Negroni. Um, I just love Negronis; it's so much greater than the sum of it par- some of its parts, and it only tastes like itself. Nothing tastes like a Negroni, um, and I just think they're so delicious. Um, and I know it's very simple, but um cocktails are meant to be a simple pleasure and um i really enjoy drinking them so i guess that's about as uh that's the only uh bar it needs to clear for me Mm -hmm. (laughs) any preferences
0: on the on the on the spec or what's going in that one
1: yeah so um people will play around with um dialing up or down the gin or or bringing the Campari down a little bit. I still for myself, just like in equal parts, one ounce all the way across the board of gin Campari and sweet vermouth. Um, I'll probably use a, like a cookie di Torino, like a very classic sweet vermouth. Um, I'll, I'll use Campari. I do think Campari belongs in a Negroni. Uh, there are a lot of really fantastic, uh, replacements or, um, additions to the red bitter category. Um, for me, a Negroni has got to have Campari. And then for gin, um, I'll, I'll honestly, I'll, if I'm making it for myself, I'll probably just grab what's closest to me, but, um, I really love, I'll just pick one of, one of the gins that I love, I love uh, like Saint George Terroir, which is yeah. just an absolute banger from California. It's just spruce tips for days, mm-hmm. um, and I, I love that gin so much. So if it was going to be my last, I I would probably I'd think I'd probably go with that. Wow, Smith, Patrick Smith, yes,
0: thank you so much Tim. for joining us today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's uh it's been my pleasure
0: to be here. Let's go grab some vespers.
1: Uh, that sounds great. Okay, that was a
0: lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, Vinepair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I wanna give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team. Too many awesome people to mention, they know who they are. But I wanna give some credit here to Daniel Grinberg, art director at Vinepair for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music, that's a Darby Seaside original.